Hi, Katie. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Although uh, my city, Amsterdam, is suddenly becoming a little less quiet and there are even some tourists here. Ooh, dragging their wheelie suitcases along the floor. It's caused quite a reaction from the locals. We all got quite used to having the city to ourselves and it being a bit of a nice ghost town. Um, Apparently it's still only like 10% of normal numbers but that's enough and uh, the locals are revolting 27,000 of them have signed a petition saying uh, that they want to limit tourist numbers to 12 million a year wow it's currently around 18 million and there might actually be a referendum about it that's very exciting i mean you've always been a tourist hating city amsterdam but it's nice that you're finally putting your money where your mouths are it's true although i didn't sign the petition because i'm worried that amsterdam will like turn into a luxury tourist destination Mm. because everything will just get more expensive then i won't be able to afford to go to the restaurants either if they're just restaurants for rich tourists so i i think we local amsterdamers need to be careful about what we wish for in paris everyone was saying oh things are going to get so much tidier now the tourists have left and apparently parisians have been realizing that oh wait they're actually responsible for themselves for like loads of the littering. Mm. It's a grubby town. Although I think lockdown has meant that litter collection like generally across the world has become quite complicated because people were staying at home and producing much more household litter. Getting internet deliveries. Yeah, exactly. We certainly had a problem here with litter collection and they had to bring in private companies to try and get rid of the rubbish. <laughs> this is a really exciting chat about litter collection. Yeah, maybe you can cut this bit, Katie. <laughs> is that what people come here for? Litter chat? Litter chat and over-tourism. You're going back to Paris, aren't you? I am. I'm heading back in your direction. Back to the continent after three very long months stuck in the UK. I've booked my Eurostar ticket. It's really exciting. It feels like it's about time I've basically forgotten how to speak French, as anyone who's been unfortunate enough to have to converse with me in French recently will confirm. So yeah, looking forward to going home. That's very exciting. I look forward to being that little bit closer to you. But still far enough away. Uh... Right. Uh, What are we talking about this week, Dominic? Uh, This week, we are looking into acts of European solidarity with a data whiz. Raphael Loss from the European Council on Foreign Relations. He is the coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects, and he has helped to develop this really nice thing called the European Solidarity Tracker, which is an interactive tracker that collects and displays instances of pan-European solidarity throughout the pandemic. There's also a couple of other solidarity-related things we want to talk about this week, but that's coming up a little bit later as part of our isolation inspiration segment. But first... Who's had a good week, Katie? A uh, good week goes to the Serbian president, Aleksandr Vucic, and that is because his party has won a landslide in Europe's first national elections to take place during the pandemic. A landslide? Sounds very impressive until you realise that most of the opposition boycotted the vote in protest at how autocratic Vucic has become. He's one of those leaders that increasingly gets described as a strong man in newspaper headlines which I always think is a really bad sign of how your life is going. You know, like, if the newspapers were describing you as strong man, Dominic Kramer, 
Maybe it would be time to take a long, hard look at yourself. I do want to be strong, though. A strong man. I am a man. (laughs) But not a strong man. Um, Why are people calling Vucic a strong man? Well, since becoming prime minister in 2014 and then president three years later, Serbia has become increasingly autocratic in the way it's being run. Freedom House, the NGO that measures how democratic countries are, recently they said that Serbia shouldn't even be considered a democracy anymore. It's kind of a, a hybrid regime. In practice, that means things like the courts are less independent than they used to be. There's very little independent media. And the opposition boycotted this election because they knew there wasn't going to be a level playing field. The main media organisations in Serbia have basically become government mouthpieces. It's pretty depressing. So even though Vucic's party, the right-wing Serbian Progressive Party, they're on track to get about 60% of the vote, the opposition are saying this isn't really a legitimate vote. This all doesn't sound that great if they're hoping to join the EU sometime. Yeah, in theory, they are supposed to still be joining the EU at some point. They've been in talks for years with the EU. But Vucic has been pretty clever in that he's kind of been playing different powers off against each other. He somehow managed to stay friendly with Russia and get cosy with China and stay fairly close to the EU at the same time. Privately, I think a lot of EU countries would be very alarmed to see yet another not very democratic country joining. And it's not even clear that Serbia wants to join. There do seem to be some benefits from staying between all of these bigger powers and kind of playing them off against each other. So we'll have to see what's going to happen on that front, but it doesn't seem like they're joining anytime soon. They've also got some upcoming peace talks, haven't they, with Kosovo that Trump is hoping he's going to like work his magic on. (laughs) Yay! that's definitely something that's going to fix everything um yeah and i guess that is kind of the silver lining this week there might be a glimmer of a silver lining in this election win in that some analysts think it might help create more momentum for a peace deal with kosovo so just a quick catch up serbia has never formally recognized kosovo as an independent country after it broke away from serbia in 1999 And that has created loads of problems for Kosovo. It's been repeatedly blocked from joining international organisations like the UN and Interpol. And until recently, they've been in this kind of trade war between each other. So lots of people would like to see this sorted out, including the EU and the US. Uh, It looks right now like Vucic is more in favour of joining the EU process rather than the US one. But either way, the election is something that maybe could help to create a little momentum for something actually finally moving on that front. That is a silver lining, I guess. But um, still, it's pretty grim. Why are there? Is there any sign that this election will have to be overturned because it was boycotted by the opposition? Mm, not really. And even the observers from the OSCE have said it mostly operated in an OK-ish fashion, despite like voter intimidation and the media landscape being really like weighted in favour of Vucic. So there's no sign of like a rerun or anything. Expect to see Vucic around, in general, for a quite long time to come. Um, I should mention that we were actually really torn over what to talk about in this segment this week, because there was also some really interesting reporting about Sweden's new sexual consent law, which seems to have been pretty effective at increasing rape convictions. Grim but good news, I think, and certainly something that's been welcomed by Swedish women's rights campaigners. There was some good reporting on this done by Catherine Edwards at The Local. So I will drop a link for that in the show notes. Yes, suddenly we've got like loads of news every week. In the height of the crisis, we, we, when we were desperately looking for non-COVID related stories, it was so difficult. But the news has come back with a vengeance. The news is back. Who's had a bad week? 
It's been a bad week for Croatian bees. Sorry, this is one of those like pretty sad bad weeks. Mm. Last week, the county prefect of a district called Međimurje, an area in northern Croatia that borders Hungary, declared a natural disaster after 50 million bees suddenly died. Bloody hell, that's a lot of bees. Yeah, as if it already didn't feel like the end of days. Um, on June the 9th, beekeepers witnessed the pretty horrific sight of a carpet of dead bees. The 50 million number is calculated roughly from the thousand hives that are reported to have been lost. What, what happened? How did they die? Well, we don't really know yet, uh, although pesticide poisoning is the number one suspect. It's currently being investigated by a team of veterinarians and forensic scientists they think it's either a pesticide that was used on potatoes or a pesticide that's used for rapeseed. And sadly for the Association of Beekeepers in this county, this isn't the first bee poisoning they've had recently. And they knew more bee poisonings were on their way. Just a few years back, they organised protests against the use of pesticides and the damage they can do for bees. Pesticides are, of course, not the only source of concern for bees. Uh, climate change has been making habitats less friendly for bees in general over the last century. Since the Second World War, we've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows, which are a key home for bees for their food and shelter. So the beekeepers in Mejimurje County are receiving compensation for the lost hives, but this isn't only about the beekeepers. Um, this is also about the bees themselves. And selfishly, from a human point of view, it's important to stress how vital bees are for our ecosystem. They are so good at pollinating, way better than we are. We need them to keep doing that. According to the Friends of the Earth, more than 90% of the leading global crop types are visited by bees. And according to the UN, one in three spoonfuls of food we put in our mouths depends on bees. Oh, that's a good way of putting it, because I put a lot of spoons of stuff in my mouth. They even pollinate the cotton trees that our cotton clothing come from. So, yeah, please don't use pesticides that poison bees, please. Okay. Thank you. The EU has banned various bee-unfriendly pesticides, although MEPs did have to offer a rebuke last year, do you remember, to a group of 16 member states who were trying to water down legislation banning bee-harming pesticides? Oh yeah, which seems very heartless and stupid, faced with a carpet of bees. Yeah, but clearly more needs doing. Um, we'll see whether it was one of those banned pesticides that turned out to be the cause of this mass death, or if it was another one which should be then added to the ban list, I say. Fortunately, it looks like this mass bee death is pretty localised. And whilst it did affect over a thousand hives, I should point out that there are actually 500,000 hives in Croatia and about 10,000 beekeepers, according to the Croatian Beekeeping Association. Honey is a big business. Mm. Although actually when I was researching this, I discovered that it's even more popular in Slovenia, where yeah. there's a population of just over 2 million humans and 100,000 thousand of them are beekeepers well done slovenia it's like a national pastime isn't it beekeeping yeah they're super into it it is and they use like traditional techniques to care for them as well which is something we should look into more actually talking of bees in europe have you seen honeyland yet i haven't no what is it oh this... that film about the the woman the woman in north macedonia who lives a very traditional 
life um caring for bees in the mountains yeah and apparently it's utterly beautiful i think about six months ago everyone was watching it and talking about it so i'm a bit behind um and i want to watch it please um but yeah bees are great that's the conclusion of this uh subject and i can cheer you all up by saying that my lockdown roof terrace project has blossomed like mad and i have loads of bee-friendly flowers and moss and uh the bees are so happy up there i had zero bees at the beginning of lockdown and now i've got tons oh no bee crisis where you are no i'll post a photo on instagram of me chilling with the bees head over to our instagram page at europeans podcast i've had a hankering recently to read a kind of accessible science book about bees and i can't find one so if anyone knows of any good books about bees I'm all ears. Yeah, I was quite enjoying the like kids section of Friends of the Earth where (laughs) they were talking about why bees are good. It's about my level. Yeah, for me too. Many more generous people began supporting the podcast this week. They are Katarzyna Rotnika, Carol and Russ Simmons, Alexander de Hotot and Ali Payton. Thank you, generous people. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. It really makes such a huge difference i know we keep saying it but um if you have any uh, spare cash at the moment we'd really appreciate it to help us keep this podcast running head to patreon.com forward slash europeans podcast speaking of people doing nice things uh, it's time for our interview with Raphael. i think it's fair to say that the last few months have not been easy for the european project our borders have been closed countries have been turning in on themselves the eu itself seemed pretty absent especially at the beginning in managing the crisis Probably in large part because it doesn't actually handle healthcare policy. But a lot of people were asking, like, where is Europe in all of this? Like, where's the love between countries? It felt a bit like it was every country for themselves. That's the picture that we got from the headlines, at least. Raphael was kind of curious about whether the data would show a different picture because he suspected that there were a lot of smaller acts of solidarity between countries that weren't making the headlines. Raphael works as the data wizard at the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm pretty sure that's his official job title. And he's put together a pretty nifty tool to track all of these little acts of solidarity between European countries. We were very intrigued about it. So we gave him a ring in Berlin to find out more. What is this tracker thing? Like, how does it work? What kind of data does it show? So we came up with the European Solidarity Tracker essentially in response to uh, the prevailing narrative that was sort of emerging at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis in Europe. You know, when when essentially everyone was for themselves, the EU was irrelevant, Italy was abandoned, and then the Chinese sort of came in with this very strong and effective publicizing of their own mass diplomacy. And that's something that we realized uh, emerging in, in the European public discourse. And so we said to ourselves, well, actually, there's a there's the story that the data tell on the ground is a very different one from that. And so we set about tracking all those developments, all those deliveries of masks and instances of declared solidarity that emerged in the coronavirus crisis and wanted to display those on our website. And so how did you define and categorize up the different types of solidarity? Right. Of course, solidarity is a fairly multifaceted concept, if you want to say so. Um, and we decided to break down that concept into into different parts. So if you look at the tracker, you'll see that we have included medical solidarity, which includes essentially traditional deliveries of masks or sending teams of medical experts to a different country. Uh, we have included uh, economic solidarity, which includes everything from bilateral loans to the reallocation of EU structural funds for coronavirus crisis-related expenses. 
We have included declared solidarity, so heads of states essentially declaring solidarity with a different country. And then we have included people-level solidarity, which we found very important to shed a light on as well. Uh, so essentially all pan-European instances of civil society activity and cross-border donations. So it's clear that there have been definitely lots of kind of country-to-country acts of solidarity, which don't generate many headlines, but together I think they do represent quite a good level of neighbourliness. Um, as for the EU itself, do you think they've also done better than maybe the headlines would have suggested? I think so. So what, what has become quite clear in, in the process of collecting those data is that a lot of the things that the EU institutions have done aren't necessarily the things that people would think as being of, you know, headline grabbing and very sexy items, essentially. Um, but the EU has done quite a bit. So they have decided on a, on a temporary framework for state aid. They have shown leniency when it comes to the Stability and Growth Pact. And so all these sort of technical regulatory measures that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, see in newspapers like mass deliveries arriving by airplane, nevertheless are quite important when it comes to allowing the member states of the European Union to leverage additional funds in their fight against the coronavirus. And which countries specifically were the most generous to other countries? That's an interesting question because it raises also sort of the limitations a bit of the Solidarity Tracker. We didn't set out to essentially provide people with a comprehensive picture of everything that the EU institutions and member states and civil society have done in this crisis. The picture that we paint is incomplete, but nevertheless, we think it is indicative of everything that has been going on. I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that one country has been the most solidary or one country has received the most solidarity. Um, But the picture that the tracker does paint is that Italy, for instance, one of the hardest hit countries by the coronavirus, obviously has received a lot of solidarity as well, which sort of counters the prevailing narrative a bit that Italy was abandoned. So even early on in the crisis, a lot of medical solidarity arrived in Italy. And later on, then also declared solidarity acts, quite an interesting exchange of letters between various heads of states and the president of Italy. Um, And then also, you might remember the instance where sort of people across uh, Europe were singing Bella Ciao in solidarity with the people of Italy. All those acts of solidarity combined coming together, I think, make for a quite neat picture of, of one that shows that Italy was not abandoned in the coronavirus crisis. Was there anything you found that was particularly surprising? Uh, there, I think there are a couple of things that stand out um, that we didn't expect so from the beginning. One is that it wasn't just a, the traditionally big EU member states that sort of stepped up and helped the other countries in, in the community. There are quite a lot of instances of solidarity that include smaller member states as well. So Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania have been quite active. Luxembourg was one of the first countries to take in unaccompanied minors from Greek refugee camps. A huge impact on the sort of migration COVID-19 discourse with other countries following suit and accepting refugees as well. And then you obviously have, have civil society stepping up and collecting money, donating masks, coming up with innovative solutions through hackathons, for instance, or 3D printing face shields that are being produced open source now across Europe in support of medical professionals. One of my favorite stories that I I found on your tracker was this story about the 
Dutch Fish Marketing Board sending their first catch of herring, which consists of about 4,000 <laughs> fish, to medics in uh, the bordering German state of, uh, I think it's North Rhine-Westphalia, to thank them for, for coordinating the care of Dutch patients during the peak of the Netherlands. I thought that was a really nice uh, moment of solidarity. Um, I, I don't know how I'd feel if you sent me a big shipment of herring personally well yeah <laughs> much is this sort of delicacy right in, in the netherlands and, and northern germany as well and so i i'm sure that they were quite appreciative <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure they were and um, but i was wondering were there any countries did you notice any patterns of countries donating to each other based on historical allegiances or did it seem more selfless than that in general um i think overall the tracker gives you a picture that really stands for not necessarily sort of pure altruism across Europe. There is a lot of, you know, politicizing and instrumentalizing of, of solidarity as well going on. And obviously you have those regional clusters. So as I mentioned, the, the Baltic states, for instance, were very good in close coordination when it came to uh, border closures between the countries to restrict um, travel and the spread of the virus, but also when it came to reopening the borders and coordinating the medical response to the virus. And if you look, for instance, at Hungary's activities in the coronavirus crisis, a lot of the aid that they sent out went into the neighborhood. And a lot of the communities across the border from Hungary are sort of ethnic Hungarian communities as well, which ruffled some feathers in Romania in particular, calling it out as sort of ethnic discrimination. But deliveries went to Croatia, Slovenia from Hungary as well. And the reaction wasn't quite as drastic there. Do you have one particular example of like a really sweet display of solidarity that really warms the cockles of your heart? I do really like that story about the Dutch fish market in response <laughs> to, you know, North Rhine's failure taking in more than 100 COVID-19 patients and treating them at hospitals there. Another one would be, for instance, um, Portugal sending language teachers to Luxembourg upon request from the government of Luxembourg to facilitate the orderly reopening of elementary schools in Luxembourg. Wow, that is lovely. Um, so your tracker, it's lovely. It's emphasizing the positive things that have happened. And uh, they're often the things that don't get covered in unused. But were you at all concerned when making this that um, you were kind of brushing over the some country specific and EU wide failures with the pandemic? Like there, there clearly was some solidarity that came too late and in some cases not enough came at all so were you worried about that about painting too positive a picture i mean internally we had a lot of discussion about how to define um, operationalize and track solidarity in this in this particular moment of time and i think if you contextualize it and make clear that of course the eu could have done more much earlier on and as ursula von der Leyen said in in the speech to the European Parliament as well. I mean, she offered a heartfelt apology to Italians in particular, but EU citizens everywhere, that the EU could have done more, that it should have done more. And that's something that at this point, the tracker doesn't quite capture yet. There's, of course, a sort of concern about framing the debate on the economic recovery in particular in terms of solidarity, when some favor that you should explain to Europeans much more closely that it is in their self-interest to help those countries most affected by the coronavirus crisis now, by the migration crisis five years ago, by the Eurozone crisis 10 years ago, 
that it is important that those countries recover economically so that we can act more united and effectively on the world stage because this pandemic certainly won't be the last one that the world encounters and there are other challenges on the road ahead as well. Well, it's a really interesting way of presenting data that I think doesn't often get quantified or, or like visualized in this way. Um, is this tracker something that you're running just until the pandemic is over? Or do you think it's something that you might want to keep running in some form in the longer term? We've thought about this as well. I mean, obviously, the, the, the pandemic and the immediate sort of COVID-19 crisis provides us with a nice scope and temporal framework along which we can track those instances. I mean, we could have included many, many more instances of solidarity that do not necessarily relate to the coronavirus crisis when it comes to taking in refugees, for instance. There have been some instances of countries accepting refugees from Malta, for instance, um, that weren't necessarily framed in this sort of solidarity in the coronavirus crisis kind of way. And so we excluded those from the tracker. We really, we really wanted to focus on what has happened in Europe as it relates to the coronavirus crisis. But yeah, I think it's a neat tool that we could certainly apply to other future challenges, be it migration in the future or climate change or think of you know European security and defense. There's also a quite uh, vocal discourse going on what constitutes solidarity in a sort of defense policy kind of way. So we'll certainly think of future ideas to map in this sort of solidarity tracker kind of way, I think. If you want to check out Raphael's Solidarity Tracker, the data is well worth a browse. We'll put the link in the show notes. I really like this project because it brings together possibly my two favourite things in the world, which are hard data and warm fuzziness. I just think it's great. Geek. <laughs> so much for solidarity. There's a couple of other reasons why we're talking about solidarity this week. Things I want to recommend as my isolation inspiration, actually. Firstly, our friends at Are We Europe magazine have a new issue out. It's called The Silver Lining. And it's about positive stuff that's come out of the mess that we're currently in. I've got a copy waiting <laughs> for me when I get back, apparently. But you've got yours already, haven't you? Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's worth getting a copy of. And actually, if you want a copy, then we've got a discount code. Um, you can get 30% off if you type in the code EUROPEANS at checkout. Head to areweeurope.com. Um, the third and final solidarity-themed thing that we want to talk about this week was the fact that we're part of this kind of groovy new alliance called the Summer of Solidarity, which is a new website gathering together the cheeriest journalism from Europe this summer. It's really nice. And you'll find the link to that on your grubby little screen as well. Um, what have you been listening to or watching this week? I watched a really nice video from Teschelling, which is this island in the north of the Netherlands, where I would have been for almost the entire month of June, were it not for you know what. They've done a kind of online virtual version of uh, the theatre festival that takes place on this island called Ural. The video I'm talking about is called Still Life on the Island, and it's a beautiful piece that's based on the work from the Bauhaus choreographer Oskar Schlemmer. And it basically consists of a number of dancers on the island holding two big hoops. And uh, that might sound very simple, but it is incredibly beautiful and calming. I was transported to the island, and it's made by uh, someone I work with quite a lot called Nicole Beutler, um, who's a German choreographer. So if if you need some calming and transporting dance, 
then check out the dance film in your show notes. Sounds lovely. I also have a nice tip for anyone who's at home with kids who are five and over. There's a really nice video made by the London Symphony Orchestra and Simon Rattle called Where's Simon? where they introduce the instruments of the orchestra while Simon the conductor is busy playing with his phone and missing a rehearsal. It's a really good example of this uh, lockdown genre of like Zoom orchestras and Zoom choirs and much better than a lot of the other ones I've seen. So if you need children that need entertaining, then pop that on for a minute and they'll learn about the orchestra. Similarly to the bees, this sounds like something for kids that might actually appeal to me as an adult woman. Yeah, I genuinely think you could learn a lot from it, Katie. What are you trying to say about my knowledge of classical music? I'll stay quiet. We will be back next week. No, what about my happy ending? Oh shit, that isn't it for this week. I was going to say it went fast. Sorry. God, are you (laughs) trying to suggest that you want to axe this segment? Because we can. Do you know what? It's just that it's really hot in here. Summer has come to London with a vengeance and um, I'm just sitting here sweating. So I was kind of hoping we were done, but I'll, I'll hang around for a happy ending. Well, it's worth hanging around this week and because I want to tell you the story of a woman in Italy who recently had to undergo brain surgery to remove a tumour. Not your usual fodder for a happy story, um, but I will say straight away that thankfully there was a happy ending to this surgery and the neurosurgeon reports to the BBC that the two and a half hour operation went very well. But why am I talking about brain surgery and suggesting it might brighten up your day? Maybe it's because I feel like you've all had enough happiness uh, with all this talk about solidarity. No, that's not actually why. I wanted to talk about it because of what the woman was doing when she was being operated upon. Do you know, Katie, that like sometimes neurosurgeons practice what is called awake brain surgery when they get patients to talk or do an activity like uh, in some memorable occasions play a musical instrument or sing during their operation? Oh, yeah, just to check that it's not doing something really bad to their brain. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's a Slovenian colleague of mine who uh, had to have brain surgery. And there's an amazingly moving video of his operation on YouTube in which he's singing a Schubert song. And you see a moment where the surgeon touches a bit of the brain that's clearly vital. And he stops being able to sing. And ah! you you kind of lose your breath. And then the surgeon just calmly moves, to a, moves away from that bit of the brain. And he carries on from where he... <sighs> left off it's like so amazing i'm gonna put that link in the um, show notes as well i actually saw it before i met him and then he was like casually dropped it into conversation one day and i was like that was you you made me cry humble brag (laughs) i'm just that guy had brain surgery while singing sure (laughs) anyway that was a tangent but um it's worth a watch as i was saying they do these awake operations and hope that the patient's behavior will tell them whether they are fiddling around in a bit of the brain that they shouldn't be fiddling around in It perhaps sounds like a bonkers method of surgery, but it seems pretty common and pretty successful as a technique um, to map the brain carefully. Anyway, back to Italy, where the woman who was undergoing brain surgery wasn't singing. She wasn't playing the violin. She was preparing ascoli olives during her surgery. So she came out of surgery with a brain tumour gone and lots of stuffed olives. Preparing ascoli olives is actually pretty complicated. They're a central Italian delicacy and they consist of green olives stuffed with meat, covered in breadcrumbs, flour and egg, which are then fried, which I assume she didn't do in the surgery itself, although it didn't mention it in any of the reporting I read. 
Um, but I thought this was a lovely story and an ingenious idea. And I hope the woman is recovering well from her surgery, sitting back munching on her stuffed olives. <laughs> I can just imagine her having this like massive family gathering and people sitting down and her saying, I prepared these while I was having brain surgery, you know. Yeah, and I can't help but imagine that the olives would like have a slightly medicinal taste, you know, mm, with like some disinfectant. Hand disinfectant smell or it's a bit off-putting. Still a happy ending. Still a happy ending, just about. Right, is it actually the end of the show now? It is actually the end of the show. You can go and jump in the Thames or something <sighs> to cool down. Is that what you do in London? It's what we do here. You can actually do it. Our jingle man is going swimming in the uh, Thames tomorrow. I'm not sure it's a good idea. I didn't say that to his face, though. Um, <laughs> to face. We will be back next week with more European fun. In the meantime, you can find us on all of the social media platforms, which are... Twitter at Europeans Pod, Instagram at Europeans Podcast. Uh, you can email us, hello at europeanspodcast.com or find us on Facebook, the Europeans Podcast. I'm going to go and get some of those delicious olives now. You've made me have a hankering for olives weren't we gonna like be totally vegan katie oh they're stuff with meat aren't they yeah oh i'm sure you can get a vegetarian version i will have a hunt around hope everyone has a good week and we'll see you next week bye everyone bye